Good morning again. It's good to, to be with you today and to be in the house. My name's Jordan, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Seoul Sanctuary. And uh, it really is just a privilege to be with you today and be able to share the life lesson. Um, over the last, uh, the last month, I guess the month of March, really, uh, we went through a series on relationships entitled Relationship Rehab. And I, I, I know that that's been a blessing to each one of you. I know it's, it's been a huge blessing to me. It was fantastic teaching. And so today, we're going to shift gears a little bit, but we're still going to talk to an extent about how we treat one another. And today, we're going to look at what it looks like to, how it looks like to treat our neighbors and to treat um, strangers and those who live among us and around us how we treat those who maybe we're not in relationship with, but definitely whom we encounter um, daily. And so this morning we're going to look at a couple well-known stories in the Bible and contrast them to an extent. But let me start with this. A quote from D.L. Moody. So the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our Lives. It's a quote that I found this past week as I was preparing for this life lesson, and I agree to it for the most part. You know, I do think that obviously the scriptures are intended to give us knowledge for sure, but I understand the spirit and I understand the heart of the quote that having knowledge alone without being able to practice it, without experiencing what the Word of God wants to do in our lives, isn't going to have the effect that it was meant to have. It's one thing to be able to tell you about something, but it's quite another thing to demonstrate it or to experience or to live it. And there's a great difference between just intellectualizing our faith, but actually putting it into practice. And this was something that was problematic in Jesus's day. You see, the religious leaders, in all cases, they knew the right answers, and they knew very well what they believed. They had no problem getting that across, what they believed. But the scriptures state that they didn't lift a finger to help anyone else. In fact, the scriptures said they often tied up heavy burdens on people's shoulders. And they were hypocritical in their actions towards their fellow neighbors. You see, knowing about something is really of little use if it is not put into practice. It'd be like taking a course and studying something and not necessarily ever using it, you know? Um, one thing I always think about is skydiving. When I was younger, before I was, you know, I grew up a little bit, um, I thought this would be such an awesome thing to do one day, to go skydiving, okay? Now, anyone who knows me now knows that I'm the guy who gets queasy on the second level of a football stadium, right? And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there, like, guarding my seat and, like, you know, barely able to move, but skydiving would be something that I think would be cool to learn about. I think it would be awesome to know the ins and outs and how this works. But I, you know what, you guys? I am never jumping out of a plane, okay? It's just not happening. I'm not going to do it. I can know about it. I could read about it. I could study it. But I'm never going to put it into practice. You see, the Bible is most powerful in our lives when we put it into practice. Not just when we know about it, not just when we have it in our minds, but when we see it reflected in our heart and through our actions. Amen? And so, this morning, I want us to contrast two examples of what faith in action looks like and what faith in action doesn't look like, especially in regards to this whole idea of loving our neighbors. And so first, let's talk about a gentleman named Jonah. How many in the room are familiar with Jonah? I see your hands. Awesome. A lot of us are familiar with the prophet Jonah. We likely all know something about Jonah to an extent. He's the prophet who runs away, gets swallowed by a big fish. He really complains about, you know, the tan he's getting uh, when he's sitting in the sun one day, um, etc., etc. I love the book of Jonah because I believe that the book of Jonah can speak to any culture at any time and have a relevant message for us today that is relatable to everyone. You see, the book of Jonah really, 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 really can judge our thoughts and our motives and our heart. And there's so much contained in this little book. So many angles, so many truths that we can uncover. The book of Jonah is not merely about a prophet who ran away from God and was disobedient, but the book is actually more, I think, about having us search our own hearts to see if we behave, to see if we sometimes think and live the same way that he did. The book of Jonah convicts us. The book of Jonah asks us the difficult questions about how we see God and how we see other people. Let's read some texts in Jonah chapter 1 and verses 1 to 7. 
The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. And so right off the bat, we see that God had called Jonah to go and preach and deliver his word to the city of Nineveh. But Jonah wanted nothing to do with this whole idea. And he flees, and he runs away from the call of God in his life. And he had reasons for doing this. You see, Jonah didn't just do this because he was lazy. There might have been a little bit of that. But he had reasons for doing this. And the reason was, was because Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. Nineveh had done terrible and violent things to Israel. The last thing Jonah wanted to do was to be in contact with them, much less preach to them and lead them towards faith in God. And so Jonah, rather than going off to Nineveh as God called him to, he heads off in the opposite direction towards Tarshish. And apparently, in Jonah's mind, there was a place that you could go to where you could flee from God's presence, where you could leave that behind. And while Tarshish seems more pleasant and peaceful to Jonah, apparently God's heart is for him to go in the other direction, to Nineveh. And this tells us something early on about God in this story. And that is that we, we find God often where we least expect him. I wonder how many of us have ever gotten tempted ourselves to avoid our Nineveh and go off to our own Tarshish. Our own place where we can avoid what God's asking us to do. Where we can flee off where it just seems more peaceful, more quiet. Go to some place more desirable. Go to some place that's maybe warmer. Right? You know, Winnipeg, we, we, we get that. Surely God would be there. And then to our, dis our surprise, we discover that God is also wanting to reach the dark and less desirable places of our world. You see, this story reaffirms that, that the light shines in the dark places. And if we want to find God, we can be assured that yes, he is in Tarshish, but in the same breath, He's also in the dark, shadowy back alleys of the world, such as Nineveh, in this story. And so Jonah flees off to his ideal destination. And en route, his disobedience starts to catch up to him. And not only is it going to affect him, but it's going to affect everyone else who's on the ship with him. And rather than show some concern on how he could, you know, begin to help each person around him, Jonah decides the best thing for him to do in this moment is to go to sleep. Just have a nap. Some of us are like, you know, I kind of feel like that right now, right? But, but he, he decides to go to sleep, and he, he thinks to himself, you know, I'm just not going to bother worrying about it right now. Things will take care of themselves. And twice then already, the, with the call to Nineveh and with his encounter with the pagan sailors, Jonah finds himself to encounter people who are racially and religiously different than he is. And in both cases, his behavior is dismissive. It's unhelpful. While the pagans uniformly act more admirably than he does. That's the comedy of the story. They act more admirably than he does in his behavior. And this is one of the main messages of the book of Jonah. Namely that God cares about how we believers relate to and treat people who are different, deeply different than us. God cares about that. That's important to him. You see, God wants us to treat people of different races, of different faiths, in a way that is respectful, loving, generous, and just. And so the story continues. 
They're on the boat and a great storm's starting to develop, seemingly out of nowhere with no warning signs. And these sailors were trained. They'd been on the water a time or two. This literally came out of nowhere. And so they were kind of wondering, well, where is this from? And it seems to have terrified them. And while they are working towards solutions, Jonah is laying down under sleeping. He's not overly concerned about everything that's happening. You see, while Jonah is out of touch with his, with his peril, the sailors, the sailors sorry, are extremely alert. While Jonah is thoroughly absorbed by his own problems, they are seeking the common good of everyone in the boat. They pray each to their own God, but Jonah does not pray to his. You see, the sailors seem to be spiritually aware enough to sense that this isn't just some random storm that's happening. There's something behind this. There's something spiritual happening. And they're wanting everyone to call on their God because who knows what could be causing this. And here's some of the irony in regards to Jonah. You see, God sent his prophet to point pagans towards himself. And yet now it's the pagans pointing the prophet towards his God to pray and call upon him and see if he will intervene and see if he will help. And even after they cast lots and the lot falls to Jonah, the sailors aren't quick to assume that they have this mandate to all of a sudden kill him. In fact, they show him, you know, and, and his God the greatest of respect. And they, and, and, and they try to work it out so he's okay. Even when Jonah proposes that they throw him overboard, they do everything possible to avoid doing it. And every point, they outshine Jonah. And that's kind of the comedy of the story of the book. And I believe there's much in this story that the author wants us to see. And so what should Jonah have been learning? And what should we learn from this narrative as we look at it? Here's the first thing I think we should learn. First, we learn that people outside the community of faith have a right to evaluate the church on its commitment to the good of all. I think we learn that in this story. People outside of the community of faith have a right to evaluate the church on its commitment to the good of all. You see, the sailors knew that they were in trouble and even begin to sense that they cannot be saved without help from Jonah, but he's doing nothing to help. He, he doesn't care about the common good at this point. And so we have this memorable picture of this captain who's outside of faith reprimanding God's holy prophet in this moment. And the captain is rebuking Jonah, but he seems to have no interest in the common good in this situation. It's as if the captain's saying to Jonah, can't you see that we're all about to die here? How can you be so oblivious to our need? I understand you're a man of faith, so why aren't you using your faith for the interest of the public good here in this situation? And when you think about it, we are often in the same boat ourselves. You see, for Jonah, this instance, this, this instance was literal for him. But we all inhabit this earth. If something plagues a community, be it a water shortage, loss of jobs, poor economy, etc., it affects all of us, and we're all in the same boat. That's why I'm referring to it as the common good. And here we have Jonah, who fled from God's command because he didn't want to work for the good of the pagans, but rather he wanted to exclusively serve the interests of people who he liked or were a part of his people group. But God shows him here that he is the God of all people and that Jonah needs to see himself as being part of the whole human community and not just a member of a faith community. And so the captain is urging Jonah, call on your God. See if perhaps he can help. Hugh Martin in regards to this portion, the scripture says, the criticism is still true. Jonah is not bringing the resources of his faith to bear on the suffering of his fellow citizens. God commands us to love him and to love our neighbors, but Jonah is doing neither. His private faith here is really of no public good. And so some of us might get annoyed at the idea that the world has the right to rebuke the church or that I would even suggest such a thing. But consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, where he said in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That the world would see our good deeds, that salt and light brings credibility to our beliefs. 
Author N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, we are the church before the watching world. We deserve the critique of the world if the church does not exhibit visible love in practical deeds. And so this portion also reminds us of a second thing. It reminds us of what theologians have termed common grace. Anyone ever heard of common grace before? Theologians have termed this common grace. The doctrine of common grace is the teaching that God bestows gifts of wisdom, moral insight, goodness, and beauty across all humanity, regardless of race or even religious belief. In James 1.17, the teaching comes from the idea that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. In the teaching is that God is ultimately enabling every act of goodness, wisdom, justice, and beauty, no matter who does it. Now, we got to be careful, now hear me here, how far we take this. <laughs> we got to be careful how far we take this, because common grace does not regenerate a person's heart. It does not save the soul. It does not create a personal covenant relationship with God Yet without it, the world would be an intolerable place to live. All this means is that Christians should be humble and respectful towards those who do not share their faith. They should be appreciative of the work of all people, knowing that non-believers have many things to teach them. And in this prophet's case, Jonah really had to learn this the hard way. But this all now leads us to another story in the gospel. You see, both of these insights about the importance of common grace and the common good are taught in Jesus' famous parable, known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here Jesus takes the saying, love thy neighbor, and he really just gives it the most radical definition possible. And so we've seen in our first example, Jonah, who resisted to do anything or to even, you know, talk to the pagan sailors. What can we see differently from Jonah as we look through the example of the Good Samaritan, you see, the lack of mercy in Jonah's attitude and action towards others, it revealed that he himself was a stranger in his own heart to God's mercy and to God's grace on his life because God showed grace and mercy to him time and time again. Luke chapter 10. We've read it this morning. I'll read it quickly. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus' teacher. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, he was often being questioned. He was often having religious teachers and other people coming up to him and trying to stump him, trying to get him to say something that they can consider heresy or that they can have a charge against him. And so the expert in the law kind of sets the scene here by asking the question to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus immediately knew in his heart that this wasn't the real question, but it was the question behind the actual question. Any of us ever do this before, right? We're trying to set ourselves up, you know, for our next point before we even get the first answer. And so Jesus asks, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer recites a passage that every 
Jewish person grew up memorizing, and it's known as the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this wasn't just some likable passage, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it was foundational to all their living. And in verse 27, he realizes this was the correct answer, and people would have nodded, and they would have said, you know, well said. That's very, very well said. In another question in the Gospels, Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he added something to it in saying the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate and get this because we live in the 20th century, but Jesus added a second verse to what everyone already knew was the correct answer to the question of how do you get in good with God? How do you get eternal life, etc.? When Jesus added the second commandment, a ripple went through the crowd because now he was messing with tradition. He was messing with what they'd learn as Jewish boys and girls. And this signaled a shift in how followers of God and how followers of Christ would live out their faith from here on. And through Jesus' teaching, we go from what was just a vertical relationship, us and God, in our relationship with God, to a horizontal orientation with God. And I'll explain that a bit more as we go here. But this was a big shift. This was a big deal. You see, the second commandment is actually taken from a verse in Leviticus. And in this verse, the, the author actually defines who our neighbor is. And it's found in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. And it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord among your people. Anyone ever refer to people and say, those are my people? Anyone ever use that expression or hear that expression before? Well, that, this is kind of where that kind of came from. When it comes to how you treat people, it means you better make sure not to bear a grudge or hate or have hostility towards people who are your people. The author repeats the same idea, but love your people as yourself. You see, a neighbor to the Jewish people who took the scriptures seriously was their people. A Jew's neighbor was another Jewish person. And this is how they would have interpreted this verse. This is how they would have seen it. And Jesus recognizes this. And so through the Gospels, he challenges his disciples all the time, like in Luke 14, where he says to, the, to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't just invite your friends or your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. And so Jesus was always pointing us towards those who weren't necessarily our quote-unquote people, but were surely our neighbors. You see, it's typical for us to think of our neighbors as sometimes as people of the same social class, as people of the same means, as people who we rub shoulders with all the time. And we instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like and to love another Jew was to love themselves. This was the common thought of the day. My neighbors are my people. My Jewish brothers and sisters, these are the people who I'm supposed to love and care for. This was the mindset of the crowd that Jesus spoke to. But what Jesus is saying and what would become known as the greatest commandment is that there is a shift, there is a paradigm change happening here. Because until this point, up until this point, faith was all about keeping the rules, doing the works of sacrifice, doing the works of tradition. And faith was very much this personal thing between us and God, vertical. It was very much a, a personal thing. And this isn't even that far off, I don't think, sometimes, in how we go about living our faith in our current culture, is it? For so many, Christianity has become just about keeping rules, just about avoiding certain things. It's not far from what the religious teachers did with the law. You see, in some streams of Christianity, sin avoidance is, is pretty much the guiding light of the faith. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing, sin avoidance is something that we encourage. But I know personally, I definitely began my relationship with Christ in this matter. It was more about making sure I didn't break a rule, making sure I didn't upset God, making sure, you know, God wasn't going to be mad at me or upset with me and that I was good with him. And that's what faith was. It was this vertical line between me and him. The whole thing was vertical. 
I was far more concerned about how my behavior affected my standing with God than I was about how my behavior affected anyone else around me, to be honest with you. After all, you know, we could even start reasoning it this way, right? The Bible does say, love God, not people. So it's easy to reason this way, but in reality, this is an example I'm giving here of personal faith that's gone wrong, that's gone bad. You see, vertical morality, as we'll refer to it this morning, assumes that God's primary concern is how our behavior affects him. And we're always left wondering how our behavior sits with the holy God. And of course, there's some hypocrisy in this as well, because the primary concern is usually not how our sin affected God, but our primary concern is often ourselves and and how it affects us. And then Jesus starts saying all these things that were different to the culture, He starts saying things like, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember in that moment that your brother has something against you, first go be reconciled to them, then come offer your gift. You see, if you would have asked the first century Jew what it looked like to love God, they would have likely responded by saying, well, obey the commandments. And now Jesus suggested a new answer. Love God and love your neighbor. And his point was unmistakable. Love for God was demonstrated and authenticated by loving our neighbors. And it was certainly something that was now horizontal. It was as if Jesus was saying, don't claim adherence to commandment one if you're guilty of ignoring or violating commandment number two. And this was likely disturbing to the expert in the law when he said this. And why would that be disturbing? Well, it was disturbing because Jesus was constantly calling out the religious leaders for their mistreatment of even their own people, their fellow Jews, their own neighbors. And it's about to even get deepened for them. And so this guy gave Jesus the same answer Jesus would give, but he had a trap planned. And the guy answered right. He wanted to justify himself. And in verse 29, now comes the real question, what he was really getting at that day. And he asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? In other words, this guy is now looking for a loophole. What is the minimum amount of neighborhood love required in order to earn God's favor? That's the real question he's asking, but it's even more than that. He's basically asking, what's the minimum amount of Jewish neighboring love required in order to make God happy? Are we ever like that expert? Do we ever sometimes try to justify what we do and ask, like, you know, what's the least I can do? Or, or where do I make sure I don't get off track? You know, I can't do everything for everybody. You see, Jesus saw where he was going, and so Jesus doesn't answer his question, but he answers the question that this guy should have been asking that day. And the real question for us in this story isn't who is my neighbor. It's not a who question, but it's a what question. The better question is not who, but what does neighbor lo- look like? What does neighbor love look like? This is what should have been asked. If this is my primary responsibility to do, then Jesus, give me some practical tips. Give me some application. Give me ways on how to do that. But he really didn't want to know that. What he was wanting to know was how close to sin can I get without actually sinning? Which particular people should I not be wronging? And so the question is asked, and Jesus launches into what many theologians call his most disorienting and paradigm-shifting parable of all time. And Jesus answers, well, then let me tell you. And in verse 30, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Jerusalem to Jericho, we got to remember, is a steep and treacherous road to journey in those days, for the background. It was a dangerous trip, especially when you did it alone. Risk of robbery was common. It was always possible. And so this gentleman was beaten. He was robbed. They stole his clothes. And you got to remember that clothes in those days were extremely valuable, right? And so you, you always took the clothes. And that's why that, that detail is included. But the story of the Good Samaritan isn't just a story anymore, but it's, it's almost an idiom because people know what that means when you say Good Samaritan. I was looking online this past week, and Ontario even has a Good Samaritan Act, or they had one, and that's what they referred to it as. And maybe you've said this, but you didn't even know that you were quoting Jesus when you said the term Good Samaritan. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus introduced a word picture through a story that still continues to impact our culture today in our faith and even outside of our faith. Organizations are named after this particular moment. And this was not common. This was not natural, what Jesus was bringing across here. But this was a uniquely Christian teaching. 
In fact, when he introduced this to the Jewish audience, this, this was not something they did or were familiar with. Nobody did what he was about to ask us to do. And we are still talking about it to this day. You see, for those who are about to follow Jesus, after this moment when Jesus told this story, things would never again be the same. This was a defining moment for the followers of Christ. And so we continue in the story, and we read about a priest and a Levite who come across this man half dead on the road, and the scripture says that these two men who should have known better and stopped, they just walk on by on each side. You see, this priest would have been a descendant of Aaron, who, who would have had priestly responsibilities in the temple, would have been a prominent member in society, and he just passed by on the other side. Really, what, what that really is communicating is it's really a way of describing his unwillingness to love and care for his neighbor in that moment. And he passes on by, likely for religious reasons. Because the occupation of a priest required strict adherence to the rules of ceremonial purity. Because God's holiness requires all who would approach him to be holy. And so if this priest were to come in contact with unclean or dead people, because who knows if that guy laying on the side of the road was actually alive, he could possibly become unclean himself, and therefore he'd be unable to participate in any spiritual or social activities. And he would have had to have undertaken this long cleansing process before returning to his priestly duties. He'd have to have taken this bath known as the mikvah in that culture. It could have lasted one to three days. Could have taken as long as a week for him to get through everything. You see, this priest had a choice between inconveniencing himself and helping the stranger. If he helped the man, then perhaps that would have made him unclean. And then he'd have to go through this long, embarrassing process of ritual washings to be made ceremonial clean again. But this would throw off his day for sure. And so Jesus' point here rings true, I think, for all generations. What this guy did was he didn't want to go through the inconvenience that it can cause, so he just walked on by. And one's spirituality and one's religion should not become an excuse for avoiding opportunities to show compassion. We are not to avoid loving others out of concern for ourselves in our timeline. You see, and then there was a Levite who passed by, and the Levite was somebody who would have assisted the priests. He would have been a temple servant, a member of the religious elite as well. And once again, if he too would have went and helped this man, he also would have become unclean, and he would have had to gone through this hassle and this process of being made clean again in that time. What it all adds up to is that for these guys, they cared more about their own spiritual status than about other people's basic needs. Friends, that's religion at its worst. And Jesus is making a point here. You see, the irony is that the religious requirements of their roles were designed to honor God and, 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 and draw people's attention to him, but these religious leaders failed to do that. They showed concern for themselves instead of showing concern for a half-dead man on the road, all the while pretending that their lack of compassion was actually a reflection of obeying God. You see, these two religious leaders walked on by and didn't lift a finger, and who knows, maybe they would have thought, surely this guy probably deserved it. But the story continues. And Jesus says, but then a Samaritan came along. Now, background here is huge. You have to remember, you have to know that Samaritans and Jews were the bitterest of enemies. Okay? Samaritans were seen by Jews as, as literally... One commentator says, as racial half-breeds, as religious heretics. And so there was this great animosity between them. In fact, it's pretty safe to assume that for many in the audience listening to Jesus' story, they would have assumed that the Samaritan was likely responsible for the robbery to begin with. When, when, he, when he starts talking this way, they would have thought, okay, well, here's the guy who did it probably. Now, it's easy to chuckle that off and, you know, think, man, those guys really missed the mark that day. But let me ask this, is it ever true for us that when we hear of certain types of crimes, that certain types of people come to mind for us as well? This was Jesus' audience here. This is the people he was teaching. This is what was happening in this moment. You see, this was institutionalized prejudice and racism against a group of people. Everyone knew the rules and boundaries. Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. It was an unspoken rule, but one that everyone knew very well in that culture. And when Jesus even mentions the word Samaritan, I'm sure the crowd tensed up and they probably started thinking, surely 
he is not going to make the Samaritan the hero of the story. You see, very few in Jesus' audience would do this type of thing for a Samaritan. And probably none of them knew a Samaritan who would do the same thing for a Jewish traveler. But the text tells us that the Samaritan takes care of him and takes him to an inn and cares for him. And then the next day, the text tells us, he took out some money, and when I return, I will pay whatever is left, whatever more is needed. And this was so over the top. Jesus is laying it on, and everyone's leaning into this story. And he's just building on it, and he's making it even deeper as he goes. And once everyone settled down, Jesus did something that no one in his audience would probably live long enough to appreciate. You know what Jesus did? Jesus redefined for us forever the word neighbor. For everybody in every generation, for every following generation, from this point forward in history, no one would have the freedom to define neighbor in terms of location alone. No one would dare limit their definition of neighbor to people who were just like themselves. You see, the shock and awe of his audience that Jesus expanded the definition of neighbor beyond where they lived, beyond a single ethnicity. But the most shocking thing of all, and something that we might miss today, is that Jesus expanded the definition of neighbor even beyond the Jewish scriptures that they were familiar with. And he did it with one perfectly timed and one perfectly crafted question. And it's a question that I think still causes all of us. And this isn't even just a Christian thing. This is a human thing. But it draws our attention to Jesus. And it's a question that causes you and me to examine our hearts. It causes us to examine any prejudice we may have. It calls us to examine and ask the question, is there still any bit of favoritism left in me? Is there any bit of prejudice left in me? This question forces us to examine our hearts and ask, is there still contempt in me for certain kinds of people? And so Jesus gave us the story that seems so far-fetched to this audience. And then Jesus asked the question that literally impacted and has changed the world. And here's the question he asked. He said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers that day? Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Here's what Jesus was really asking that day. Here's the question that the audience likely would have heard as they were sitting there. Which of these three loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving a stranger as himself? You see, that was the question. And that shifted the thinking, and that touched and impacted the world. Andy Stanley, in his new book, Irresistible, concerning this story, he says this. He says, following Jesus would not be about looking for ways to get closer to God who dwelled out there, up there somewhere. Jesus' followers would demonstrate their devotion to God by putting the person next to them in front of them. Jesus' followers weren't expected to look up, but they authenticated their devotion by looking around. Horizontal. You see, this is why faith disconnected from love always leads to legalism. It simply becomes an eye-to-the-sky vertical morality between me and God that just doesn't need to concern itself with loving other people around me. And that's why that kind of faith can be dangerous. And so which of these three treated a stranger like a neighbor? And then in this moment, with this question, Jesus really takes away all our excuses not to act and on how we view other people and on how we treat those who need our help and need our love. And the expert in the law, the, the one who had the agenda, who started this whole thing to begin with, replied, the one who had mercy on him. And even that reply, friends, is, is kind of silly and kind of upsetting in its own sense. Because he couldn't even utter, he couldn't even say the word, the Samaritan. But he had to describe him. Because it was just too much. 
So he said the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself. You know, the conflict and the bitterness and the anger towards that people group was just too much that he literally had to just describe the one who had mercy. And then Jesus probably at this point possibly grins (laughs) and says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and be the Samaritan. And I bet there was no applause at this point in the story. I bet you most of the crowd was stunned. I bet you most of the crowd was silent. You see, something in the world had changed in this moment because neighbor love no longer had geographical or ethical, or sorry, ethnic boundaries. Neighbor love was as big as the world. The days of neighbor love being restricted to people who are just like me and people I like and people who I get along with, those days were coming. They had come, yet those days were coming to an end. And why? Because very, very soon after this discussion, Jesus would become a neighbor to everyone, everywhere, and every generation. You see, he would demonstrate his love for you and for me by stooping down to heal the wounds of this world. Because all of our problems and all of our own challenges in our lives stem from sin. And Jesus, in a sense, would be the Samaritan for you and would be the Samaritan for me. And when he did that, the world changed. And neighbor love would never be confined to a neighborhood. And it would cost him more than two nights stay in a hotel, but it would cost him his life. You see, the the basis for Christian behavior is the sacrificial love of Jesus that we experience. We don't just love because the Bible tells us to love. We love because God the Father through the Son has loved us and we ourselves have experienced it. You see, one of the main lessons in the story of the Good Samaritan parable is that real love entails risk and it entails sacrifice. It entails us being inconvenienced. It entails us going out of our way for another person. You see, oftentimes I think it's easy for us to find reasons to point as to why we shouldn't help people. We can say to ourselves, well, they put themselves in that position. It was their own laziness, you know, it was their own selfishness. It was their own carelessness. They were flippant and they got there. But for the follower of Jesus, what is most true is this, is that Christ also found us in the same condition. Our spiritual bankruptcy was due to our own sin our own selfishness, our own carelessness, if you will. And yet Jesus came and still gave us what we most need. And that's where we live from. So in a real way, this story is also our story. Because according to the scriptures, we were all like the man dying on the road. Spiritually, we were all dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.5 says. But when Jesus entered our dangerous world, he came down our road and he cared for us. And the book of Romans says that in our minds we were enemies of God, yet he was moved with compassion by our plight, by our condition. And he came to us and he saved us, not merely at the risk of his own life like the Samaritan, but literally at the cost of his life. And on the cross he paid a debt that we can never pay ourselves. And so the truth is this, is before you could ever give out neighbor love, you first have to receive it from him. Only if you see that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you nothing, or who even owes you the opposite, will you go out into the world looking to help anyone, absolutely anyone who's in need. It starts by receiving his love. Once we receive this ultimate radical neighbor love from Jesus, we can start to be the neighbors that the Bible calls us to be. Luke 7 says it like this, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Friends, we have been forgiven today. I like how uh, author Scott McKnight talks about this story when it comes to how we treat other people. He says this, he says, if your goal is being right, then you can wash your hands of a person. But if your goal is love, then you cannot. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. And under the new covenant, we do not love God and our neighbors. Under the new covenant, we love God by loving our neighbors. In a great way, that's how we demonstrate our faith. And so let me ask this as we're coming to a close. What are some reasons why we don't love our neighbors? 
We can answer this in our own hearts, but are are our reasons ever religious? Is it prejudice? Is it that they've wronged you and it's tough to let that go? And believe me, I get that. I'm not acting like this is all easy. Is it fear? Is it sometimes fear that holds us back from loving another person? Or is it simply individualism? And this idea that just says, look out for yourself and don't worry about the people around you. What are the things that hold us back from loving others like Jesus loves us? My prayer is that we bring our hearts to God and we allow him just to really search us on these things as we consider this scripture. And so now I ask us the question this morning, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to this man who fell in the hands of the robbers? You know who I think it was? I think it was the one who saw the need and met it. It's the person who knew there was a price and a cost, and so he paid it. And it's the one who probably didn't talk himself out of it and went through with it. And Jesus says to his audience and to this lawyer, to you and to me, go and do likewise. Go and be the good Samaritan because you never know what you're going and what you're doing will have an effect on and who it'll have an effect on and what'll come of it. And you know, I was thinking about this yesterday and I was thinking about my own personal life and I was thinking about a friend of mine. A lot of you have heard my testimony before. When I was 18, I got into a car accident. It ended up putting me back a few months. I ended up being put off work. I was sitting at home, having headaches, feeling dizzy, not feeling great at all. And a friend of mine, who ironically pastors kind of in our neighborhood now, here, right here in the city of Winnipeg, was living down the street at the time. I didn't even know him at the time, really. My parents knew him because they went to church, and I didn't really. And he came over one night with a pizza and a get-well card. Probably talked to my mom, I assume. <laughs> And he came over and brought, brought the card over, brought the pizza over, and hung out with me. And uh, we chatted, had a great time. It was kind of good getting to know him a little bit. But what was weird is he did it a couple days later again. Not the pizza. You know, you can only get pizza once in a while, right? But he still showed up, and he still hung out, and he still was a friend to me. And he wasn't necessarily doing it for any other reason than it seemed to be out of the good of his heart. And I eventually started going to church with this gentleman. And I eventually, at, one, at some point, came to a confession of faith. I put my faith in God, and I eventually started um, helping out in the youth ministry in that church months later. And before you knew it, I ended up going off to Bible college and sent in this call to ministry. And it's interesting because, you know, when he was doing this, I, I found out later on and years later that he was even in a tough place spiritually himself. And yet it's amazing how God still used him even when he was feeling that way. And so it's not enough for us to say sometimes, well, I'm not there, I'm not ready, I'm not prepared for that. Well, you know, he wasn't either, and God still used him in my life. And God still did great things in him. And here's what he did. Here's what I believe he did to minister to me, maybe not even knowing it, but he saw the need. He saw that I was this young guy sitting at home, uncertain about what was happening, and he met it, and he came and spent time with me. And he, he probably saw the price. He was a construction worker at the time. He was working 12-hour days which means he likely paid it with his time. Most people would probably rather go to sleep after that instead of hanging out with the young kid down the street. But you know what I'm most thankful about when I think about this story? I'm so thankful he didn't talk himself out of it. I'm so thankful he didn't talk himself and reason himself out of it. Because who knows, if he, if he did, what that would have all looked like, whether I'd be up here this morning even telling you this story. And that's just a small example from my life of someone who, who saw a need and met it, of someone who knew that there was a cost and paid it. But, but man, am I ever thankful that he didn't talk himself out of it. And so church, my challenge to us this morning is Jesus' challenge, that we would go out into this world and do likewise. And the needs around you, when you see them, do what you can to meet them. If there's a cost, recognize that at times you're going to have to pay it. But more than anything, if God's nudging you, if God's speaking to you, if God's leading you in something, don't talk yourself out of it. But go through with it, amen? And be obedient. And love God by loving your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this, just this time where we could just spend some time in your scriptures and allow you to challenge our hearts and to challenge our, 
our thinking even. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just be with each one of us this week. As we go out into our world, Lord, there are needs all around us. There are things that maybe some of us have been thinking about for a long time. I pray, Lord God, that you would just give us the strength and the courage to walk out into these things. To not talk ourselves out of them, Lord, but to go through with them. And to, in your power, Lord God, go out and love our world this week. To love our neighbors as ourselves. And by doing so, Lord God, may you be lifted high. May people come to see that it is of you, Lord, and may you be given much glory. And so be with us this week, Lord. I pray that you'd speak to each one's heart. Encourage us. Thank you for your presence today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me. This morning, I'm just going to end with the blessing in the ancient times, the one who blessed it so by extending hands. And those who want to receive a blessing did likewise. And here it is for you today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love God knowing that no other substitute will suffice. And love him in light of how much he has loved you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Care for the strangers among us. Protect the lives and the reputations of those around you. Cherish the relationships entrusted to you. And remember that in doing so, you are loving God. And so love the Lord your God and serve him this week in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Join us for prayer this Wednesday. And uh, yeah, be blessed. Go be a neighbor today. Have a great one.